All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck a sedum? What the fuck sticks? Yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing. All right, well, I uh, hope you're having a relatively happy pre-apocalyptic, pre-holiday season. Uh, it's weird when the things come together, the end of the world and the holidays. They're sort of similar. It always feels a little like the end of the world before the holidays. Or is, am I looking at it wrong? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to me. I do hope everything's going well and you're not too frustrated with uh, the seasonal bullshit. I mean, the the exciting uh, uh, holidays coming up. What came out? What did I say? Did something... Uh, let me tell you what's going on. First of all, Liam McEnany is on the show today. He's a, a gentleman I met when he was almost like a child, a a, a drunken round child uh, as a comic in New York City. He used to run a very popular show uh, for the 40 people that could fit into the show. We'll talk about that. A sweet guy just came out with a documentary and a very surprising conversation, very moving conversation uh, for me in, in a lot of ways. Uh, let me give you some dates because I want you to know when I'm going to be by you. And I sometimes forget to do this. And sometimes I put it at the end of the show. Fort Lauderdale, Florida at the Improv in the Hard Rock, January 4th through 6th. I will be there. And I can guarantee you my mother will be there at one of those shows as well. If that's any extra added reason for you to go. If you want to you want to see the source, uh, you know, I'll, the night the day she comes, I'll have her wait on the merch line. January 10th, 11th, and 12th, I'll be in Raleigh, Raleigh, North Carolina at Good Nights. have not been da- down there since 1994 when uh, I was uh, an asshole. I featured for the Reverend Billy J. Wirtz, is that his name? And that's a whole other story. So that's uh, that's happening uh, January 10th through 12th in Raleigh at Good Nights. Then January 13th, a special L.A. area show at the Ice House in Pasadena. Uh, those shows are generally good. I have not uh, booked whoever I'm going to be working with. We usually have a good time. January 13th, that's a Sunday, at the Ice House in Pasadena. Uh, what else is that? The Wilbur Theater in Boston, a live WTF with many Boston uh, area comics or people from Boston. I'll announce a lineup as soon as I uh, solidify it. And also doing a live excuse me, stand-up show at the Wilbur in Boston, February 8th. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. I got one more show between then and now. I didn't light any holiday candles. I didn't do anything like that. Most importantly, from the holidays, for your pre-holiday excitement, I am on Dave's Old Porn tonight. On Showtime, my friend Dave Attell hosts a show where you sit and watch pornography with Dave Attell. And I was nervous about this. I got to tell you why. There's some things I don't want you to know about me. I don't want you to know that uh, that I watch porn occasionally. Uh, I've watched it compulsively in my life. One of my first experiences uh, seeing sex was pornography before I actually had sex. I don't think that's unusual. But it was sort of interesting because I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know if my people are going to like seeing me in this context. But Dave is a dear friend, and and uh, and it was time for me to be honest. I I watch porn occasionally. I, that I don't know. If, I don't watch it. I use it occasionally, but I also use my my imagination as well. I don't want to, you know. I I still uh, you know do it uh, the classic way, which is from my own fantasies. But occasionally I'll check in with the porn. But it was it was sort of interesting because doing the show 
You know, Dave's primary concern was I was going to be some sort of buzzkill. The guest was Christy Canyon, which is odd because when I was a doorman at the comedy store, she was sort of hanging around. Pornography people, porn stars used to hang out at the store. And I was, you know, perversely fascinated with with them, not in the way you would think, but just sort of like, wow, I, I want to talk to them. They, How do they do that job? I mean, how do you demystify sex to that point to where it's a job, you know? But she was on, so we actually had some past. You know, not, not that we knew each other, but we were in the same little world for a little bit. And But Dave's primary concern was that, like, look, he, he, he literally walked up to, uh, before the show. I think I might have mentioned this before on the show. He, he says, look, all right, this is about... There's a celebration of Christie, all right? Don't bring her down. Don't ask her about her father. Uh, you know, I didn't do that. But uh, it's an awkward show, but I think that's what makes the show. You basically sit on a couch and you watch porn with David Tell. You're sitting there watching porn. Now, I don't know about you, but when you watch porn, for me, it's a it's really a solo flight. It's a it's a it's a one-on-one, me and porn. I've never watched porn with uh girlfriends or wives didn't need it i didn't think to do that seemed a little awkward uh but usually it's a very it's a solitary thing it's not something you do in front of a camera or with another person unless you're actively engaged with that other person in some sort of sexual business i guess what i'm saying is that i sat on a couch i watched porn with david tell we commented on the porn we didn't jerk each other off which probably would have made for a better show and then christy canyon came out we were watching christy canyon porn and we talked to her and that's what the show is so if you want to see me talk about porn to david tell while we watch porn and then talk to christy canyon about the porn that we've just watched her in she's been out of the racket for years then tune into dave's old porn tonight uh, to see that that's the 20th if you're listening on the day that i release that i'm sure they'll re- they'll repeat it i'm curious about it and thank you dave for the uh he just sent some sort of basket full of chocolates that's what i get for uh, revealing my inner porn fan i get a box of chocolates thank you dave i appreciate that so enjoy that show now back to hanukkah back to the season of giving Can we make a transition? Can we do that? I did not light one fucking candle this year. I did not say one prayer. I have not. I bought uh, a few close friends presents. I have not bought my girlfriend a present. I'm going to save that till the last minute and freak out and feel guilty and go go spend a lot of money on something she probably doesn't want. It's weird when you get into a relationship and I've already given her plenty of apology gifts over the over the last year. And, uh, you know, we're at that point in the relationship where you're like, well, just tell me what you want. I don't know. We always we just get what we want. You know, you always get me what I want. Well, do you want anything? So now I got to figure out the surprise. I got to figure out the curveball. I got to figure out the the thing that she didn't see coming, and then roll the dice on that and see what that is. Nothing worse than the unwrapping the in and the opening of the box of disappointment. That that immediate moment where they're like, oh, and then that's followed by like, I can fucking bring it back. No, no, seriously, you can return and get something you want. Oh, maybe. Okay, Merry Christmas. That was a letdown. Holy shit. Pow! Just coffee.coop. Just shit my pants. It's iced. I'm lying. It's iced tea. I'm drinking the iced tea that uh, came out of the bottle that I almost slammed onto the head. 
of somebody in a Trader Joe's. Obviously, I didn't almost do that. Look, you know what? Let's get on with it. I'm obviously in no mood, and I love you people. Happy holidays. Did I say that? They're coming. But who the fuck knows? Tomorrow, none of this could be relevant. The best thing that can happen is the world actually ends, but none of us realize it. It's more of a subtle thing. It's a subtle apocalypse. We just all at the same, we wake up Friday and we're like, something feels different, but everything's exactly the same, but it's fucking over. Let's talk to Liam McEnany. Let me hear you now. Hey, this is Liam McEnany speaking at my normal volume. That's pretty good. I'll probably go like this when sure. I'm getting sexual. Yeah, are we getting sexual? <laughs> William McEnany? I have a lot about you that I want to tell you. What? <laughs> I have a lot of dreams about you, Mark. Come on, man. Seriously? <laughs> no, I don't. Do you have some information about me that I need to know? <laughs> you can tell me, man. You know, I've, I've watched all of your stand-up sets so many times, and uh, I, I, I noticed the way you hold your mic is very gay. Huh. I had no idea that that was an issue, but I uh, I appreciate the input and I'll be aware of it. Somebody once told me that um that I should never drink out of a straw on stage. Really? Because it just looked too weird. So I, I don't. Uh, you know what? It seemed honest and concerned. The guy who told me was like, "Don't do that," <laughs> and it wasn't like a uh, like a uh, some sort of um, principle thing. It was just that he had watched me using a straw, right? And he said no. No, really? And done for you. So you specifically have like a weird straw technique? I guess so. See, I just never, I never thought about that. I would just, uh, you know, I would always get drinks that had little tiny red stirring straws. And you would sip through that? I would sip and I would like pucker my face and it would just... And a fella your size... A fella my size... With a little straw, <laughs> that's got to add to some comic effect. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't mean to, I wasn't trying to be mean. No, 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 I'm, I'm a big dude. I Believe me, I'm I'm like, uh, I'm doing Couch to 5K right now to like work it out. I, do, what is that? Oh, it's this interval running program where basically like uh, you, it's a nine week program and you start out in the first week, like you, you go for 25 minutes and you jog for 60 seconds and then you walk for 90 seconds and you jog for 60 seconds and you walk for 90 seconds. And then the second week, you like jog for 90 seconds and walk for 60 seconds. And the idea is at the end of two months, you're ready to run a 5K. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I haven't been working out much myself, and, I, and I'm, I'm hating myself for it, but I always push myself to run. When I was at my peak, I could run four miles pretty good, right. not you know, nine-minute miles. But now like, I'm a little, I'm a little, it's a little harder. Ten, I can do three and a half, three. Ten years ago, I worked out really, I worked myself too hard. Uh, and that's what broke you? <laughs> that, that was the end of it. Like, I, I clearly am broken. I had, a, I had a, like a dot com job where I did thirty minutes of work a day, and they never kept track of my whereabouts. So I would just go for a three hour lunch. Can we talk about that company now? What, what does a dot com job mean? Uh, it was I worked at a dot com job in ninety nine mm. uh, on on the bubble. Yeah, uh, it was called the Humor Network. And oh yeah, I was the head writer of a joke of the day email list. And that was it. So that was once it. you did your joke of the day, you were well, that was, pack it up. That was it. I would do my joke of the day, and uh, you know, basically, uh, 
eventually they started asking me to do stuff like find advertisers for the company yeah because they weren't making any money sure and I was just like, well, if I'm if I'm the guy who's searching for advertisers, <laughs> I better find another job. <laughs> so I don't know when I met you. It must have been when you were a child. I feel like you used to do. Um, you started around the time my ex-wife started, so that must have been around two thousand and two ninety-nine, two thousand. I started in ninety-seven. I was nineteen years old. I started. Uh, but when did I meet you, Liam? When did? Oh, that was. Uh, April 14th, 1999. <laughs> it's written in my diary. I checked that out before it came. No, I, it's, it must have been 99. Yeah, something it like that. It was the surf reality, I mean, the Luna Lounge scene, actually, the eating it at Luna Lounge. The crashing scene. of the wave. The crashing? Of, uh, the, the arcs. That was towards the end of that, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I got, <laughs> like, ever, like every scene, I got into it right when it was over. Yeah. Uh, pretty much. Uh, but you were like, you were just like one of those guys who was like a, who was just like a, a, you know, like a big deal in the, right. in and, the alternative and a big deal in a scene. small world. Well, that's, well, I didn't know that. Yeah. Like I really thought, you know. You do now. <laughs> I'm still a little deal in a very small world. So I totally, uh, <laughs> but at the time I was like, oh, all these guys are super famous because they're like the best, you guys were the best comedians in New York City in my opinion. But I, I just assumed that like. You know, you had like a worldwide following. Sure. But when I started stand up, I would see guys on TV and I'd be like, oh, that guy's on TV. He must be really rich. Oh, yeah, yeah. The illusion. Yeah, like he The must... illusion that TV pays money <laughs> as a stand up. So I would see you, I would see you on like uh, the A list. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, that guy must have a house and a car and, <laughs> you know, he must be making millions of dollars. Sure, on the $800 I made on the A list. <laughs> I probably bought a house with that money. <laughs> I think I got, I think they gave me a meal. <laughs> I, 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 believe me, I learned. I learned as soon as I, I did premium plan. The, the basic cable money isn't going to buy you a house. You learn that it's not even going to pay like a month's rent. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a sad truth that I don't think people uh, realize. So you started when you were seventeen. I started when I was nineteen. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Queens, New York. So, well, you didn't travel very far, did you? No, no. I, Where in Queens? Rigo Park, right in the center, right in the middle of nowhere, Queens. Yeah. Yeah. It's so like a, what kind of childhood, though, was that? You know what? It's it's like a weird... It, it's always been a weird mix. I mean, I still live there. Uh, excuse me. My voice just broke. Okay, Why? Your parents' house? Uh, I, live in an, I live in the apartment I grew up in. My parents moved away, and I just held on to the apartment because it's rent-stabilized. Uh, and it's it's like basically it's always been this like weird... It's, a, it's an immigrant community, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and you always get these waves of immigrants who come through. Uh, well, what's there now? Uh, very Russian. Oh, really? It's all Russian. Russian Jews. Russian Jews. Mm. All the, all the Satmars and the you know it's it's actually, it's the biggest uh it's the biggest community of Uzbeki. Uh, I wish I, I can't remember the name of of the Jewish community, but it's the biggest in the world. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's like I, I I googled it because I had to show the Daily News around my neighborhood. <laughs> They were doing a piece on you? They were doing a piece on the neighborhood, and uh -huh. they asked me to show show them around. This guy's been here since he was a kid. <laughs> Maybe he knows what's going on. This guy can't seem to escape. He knows everything here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but apparently, like, some of the biggest uh, performers in, in that community, in the world, you know, the live- The biggest Uzbeki performers right. in the world the live near you. The biggest Uzbeki performers of this particular Jewish persuasion- Oh, like just dance, like famous dancers and singers. Have you gone to any shows? No. Absolutely. Why not? I don't know about them. I don't know these. I don't. You can't say hi to the fellow that's out in the street and go. You know, are, is is it? Uh, 
the situation where there's all these weird posters for people that you don't know up in the windows that always had me in Astoria you know like Yanonsky you know and be a guy smiling and you know, be playing somewhere in my neighborhood and I never went to go it took it yeah there's there's that there's definitely that where it's like guys in weirdly garish outfits yeah. and it's like you know October 13th yeah. at a place that you never knew existed right October 13th through 17th <laughs> nine shows of this guy in the weird outfit that I don't know right but it, yeah, exactly. But also, it took them, I think, like twelve years to even start talking to me. Really? And yeah. you were there first, isn't that weird? I was there first. But they probably didn't talk to you like you were the intruder. It was. It was more like I think they just. Well, I don't know. They didn't. Most of them didn't speak English when they moved in in the first place. So did you grow up in like you have such a uh, an amazingly Irish name? Uh huh. My mom's family are Jewish. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I was raised as a Buddhist. Uh, so kind of hippies or. No, <laughs> they're way too uptight to be hippies. So were they Namiyaho Buddhists? Yeah, yeah, Namiyaho oh, so Renikyo Buddhists. The culty Buddhists. Uh, yes, it's a. Uh, <laughs> I actually am. <laughs> I'm a little worried about how much I can say. Like, really? Uh, they're they're always. Oh, whatever. I mean, it's it's. I don't a, think you're saying anything negative. I mean, that thing seemed to work for Tina Turner. Why can't it work for everybody? I mean, it, it was a very. Uh, I, I don't really even, it's, I don't want to be uh, poo-poo it because a lot of people uh, were into it. It sort right. of took hold in the the mid-60s, I think, right? I feel like it's a very positive practice. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, people, uh, they're just like any religion. There There's people who are attracted to it who are very hardcore. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who end up just running things. No, I know that. That's uh, the same with uh, a certain program that I belong to. What's that? The uh, you know the one oh the, yeah the yeah, secret yeah. society the secret society that keeps us sober it That's seems right. like if it weren't for for control freak fanatic recovering <laughs> uh, drug addicts and alcoholics that thing would fall apart <laughs> it's very true you do have to someone have someone someone's got to run the someone's got to be at central office so so there has to be someone who's like there's a specific kind of Oreo cookie yeah. that tastes the best that we yeah. have to spend the money sure. on those are the those are the uh, the grunts but you know yeah up the chain there's got to right. be people that not only are uh, you know, into service, but also have some some management skills, right? To to keep the, the the money flowing into the right places. But then you hear nightmare stories like, "Oh, I tried to get my group listed." Uh, well, that's uh, different. But, yeah. but we're called like the Bleeding Deacons. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. They were like, "That's not right." Well, those those fights will always happen. <laughs> but tell me about this Buddhist thing. So you grew up with the the little uh, shrine in the house. Grew up with a little shrine in the house. Did you chant as a child? I did chant as a child. Do you chant as an adult? I do actually. The thing is, I like the practice a lot. What does it entail? Please help me. <laughs> it. <laughs> well, Mark, uh, that's the reason I'm here. Good. I, I really <laughs> bring uh, it. <laughs> I feel like I can really fix your 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 yeah. karmic levels. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. Please, please do. <laughs> I feel. I feel like I've got such horrible karma following me through my life. Really? I'm like probably the worst spokesperson for any like Buddhist organization. Why do you feel like you have horrible karma? I mean, what is it? How do, how is uh well, let's get specific so I can, you know, give a framework. I mean, we all talk about karma, but I mean, not everybody, but it's a word that's bandy about right. for uh I I'm not even exactly sure what it means. Uh I mean, essentially the idea of karma is like you you put out a certain energy in the world and then it comes, you know, like... Comes back to and you. And then it comes back to tenfold you. Tenfold or is, comes, there, is there a number? Is there an exponential issue? Like you put that out there, it's going to, you know, like a boomerang effect. Right. So you, watch out for the boom, the karma boomerang. It's X times seven. 
that's uh, that's mathematical. That, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. It's x times seven divided by uh, something bad you said about someone ten years ago. Yeah, that's Buddhist math. <laughs> Buddhist math is you put it out there, it's going to come back bad. Right. I mean, essentially, every religion is just like you uh, reap what you sow. Yeah. I mean, it's all about basically playing on your guilt feelings mm-hmm. and just plucking at those like guilt nerves. Right. And then you know, telling you like, well, the reason why you're doing a be- you're like you're doing so shitty now is because you did a shitty thing to someone uh, a year ago. Right. It's you know, payback. It's Karma. payback. You know, it's whether it's like the commandments or you know the. You will pay. You will pay. Uh, uh, spiritually, morally, maybe physically. Yeah. It's funny. I always- There's a certain truth to it. I mean, that is if you're not a sociopath. But uh, I I don't know. I mean, I feel like good and bad things are going to happen. No no matter matter, what. Yeah, like no matter matter what you do, you know, good or bad things are going to happen to you. Right. You can't get, you can't let, uh, you you can't let that, the the circle get too big. Right. Uh, You you know, just because you did something, because you- you know, uh, you, you hit a kid in grade school. It's not why you got cancer, right? So, but there's a more immediate neighborhood of uh, of of output, right? That that you could directly say, like, well, I said that, and now I don't have a job. Like that's you know, that's the direct immediate results right. of karma. Fuck you, boss. Right, you're fired. Hey, that's karmic return right there. Hey, man, I get drunk at a company Christmas party. Uh, I forget two hours of what happened. I wake up and don't have a job. That's not karma. That's just like. <laughs> It's just life, but but I do think that uh, those type of uh, you know spiritual teachings are apply to that. Right, it's basically sort of like be careful what you right. do, what you say, how you act, because it will have an effect right on your immediate life. I mean, but if you read if you read the book, like if you read the Old Testament, and this is a very fascinating interview. Once I start talking about the Old Testament, sure, man, but, lay it out. <laughs> but if you read like all all those stories about the original Hebrews, yeah, those guys were savages. Like, yeah, sure. All those stories end in murder. Like yeah. the story of the Ten Commandments ends with every tribe but two getting getting killed by the birth. Well, 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 they had to make it seem like something other than a bloodbath for it to uh, to resonate for centuries. Right. <laughs> there has to be a there has to be a lesson in this massacre in this mess of us struggling to be uh, you know better than other animals. But no, but in terms of Buddhist practice, so what What do you do? I mean, what is that about? I don't think I've talked. I know I have one friend who's a Buddhist, but we don't really talk about it. Right. But um, but your your father was brought up Catholic and your mother was brought up Jewish. Right. And then what, what provoked them? Uh, I think part of it, I mean, especially in the 60s, I guess, there yeah. was a lot of just spiritual seeking mm-hmm. and the idea that, you know, what you had learned as a child didn't really, like, apply in in the real world when mm-hmm. you looked at it analytically mm-hmm. and so the idea was to find something even crazier to hold on to <laughs> because that has to be the truth and i, th- I think that's yeah. what led to a lot of people looking at eastern a philosophy. lot of lost people that's what led to people <laughs> losing themselves for for decades sometimes um <laughs> wandering about in languages and ideas that they were don't understand right. Spending spending a year and a half living in India with no no working toilets. Did they because, do that? My parents didn't do that. Oh. But they, you know, people. Sure. You know. Sure. That's what you got to do if you right. want to find peace. If you really want to connect with yourself, yeah. Get out there and get dirty, yeah, like yeah. Buddha did. Ex- that's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, his whole story was basically he he almost starved to death under a tree, and then he had a divine inspiration that starved. As a starving person would. Yes. You do tend to hallucinate. <laughs> 
<laughs> but he but what but what he learned was that starving wasn't such a great idea, which is why he became such a big fat guy. Yeah, was because he was just like, you know, what else is a really good thing? Not starving myself. <laughs> is that true? That is that's basically the Buddha story in a nutshell. What, what was Buddha's name? Was that Siddhartha? I I I don't know. Oh boy, I'm. You know, it's funny, like, I'm I'm not really an expert on this stuff because it's like, you know how people grow up Catholic or... Yeah, but I don't want you to be an expert. It's just right. a unique, uh, you know, it, it's like, I imagine, yeah, things get watered down and right. and obviously it doesn't require the same discipline as a religious Jew or, or a practicing Catholic. Right. But there are things that y- you do for a reason. Right. What are they? I mean, you know, you, you're basically supposed to get up, you're supposed to chant, you know, supposed to chant, uh, you recite... You know, uh, books of the Lotus, chapters of this, the Lotus Sutra uh-huh. uh, every day, mm-hmm. uh, and essentially the idea is the idea is that the Buddha was a man mm-hmm. who was able to raise his karmic level to the point where he was a perfect human being, mm. and so the idea is if you practice, uh, if not in this lifetime, then at some lifetime you will you'll be able to achieve attain a level of of karmic I guess perfection. So you keep coming back. That's the reincarnation. Trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, you fucked it up this time. Uh-huh. Maybe if you get the right body, right. we can uh, we can progress a little more. Right. But you're not aware of that. I I don't. I mean, I don't believe that. Yeah. I think when you're done, you're done. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. like you like I really do think like once. You know, <laughs> once you're done, it's over. But the act of chanting, I think, is. Uh, is in itself uh, peaceful. That it, you know, I will I will do that sometimes if I can't sleep. I have something that I repeat. Right. Uh, and and that process is is it? Would you call it meditation? I mean, how long does a chanting say? Like you get up, you sit in a, a certain way. Uh huh. I sit in a chair. Oh, but it's, is there? But are you supposed? Is it, is it considered a meditation or is it considered a? a... No, it's not really a meditation. I mean, uh-huh. it's, it's just like it's a it's a practice of chanting mm-hmm. and and repetition. Mm-hmm. And it really does mellow you out. Like it yeah. really like enables you to go inside a little bit and just like you know sure you know yeah clean house clean house exactly <laughs> i can't meditate because the wheels are always spinning in my right. head. right but if you're chanting that occupies right that thing exactly right and what are the requirements of this do you is there a community is there a congregation is there money involved i mean yeah there's you know the, it's, it's essentially what happened was a while ago uh the priesthood went one way and then the lay organization went the other way. So the organ the of the Namiho Renge Kyo. Yeah. What, what is there a name for the that? The Nichiren uh Shoshu Buddhists. Okay. And uh, and so the lay organization has, you know, uh has community centers is what what they're called. Mm-hmm. Uh or culture centers, I'm yeah. sorry. They're called culture centers. Right. Uh all over the country. Mm-hmm. And you can go and they're the big uh, you know, scrolls that you can chant to and mm-hmm. there are people leading these uh chants mm-hmm. and you know es- essentially it's just it just <laughs> sounds very familiar but it's it's a requirement to you know the the requirement for membership is a desire to improve your life and that's improve, it yeah basically and eventually if you practice you will get a scroll of your own to put in your home and you know, but the, it's like you have to set up an altar. You have to have candles. You yeah. have to have fresh fruit as an offering. You have uh-huh. to have like a a plant as an offering. Uh-huh. Uh You know, you you have to burn incense. You know, it's it's all creating a, uh, a a ritual space. Exactly. Yeah. No, I get it. And uh, it, it, there's no. I mean, I think everybody does that to some degree with their life. I mean, you have. 
uh, a corner of things that right. are important to you that have that right. you, you've invested with something that makes you it makes you feel better. You know this thing. This like I keep things. These are I keep all kinds of shit here. Right. I wouldn't call it a ritual space, but I make sure that these things are stacked a certain way, and they're just little pieces of steel I found in the beach in Hawaii. So. I'm not saying, you know, it makes me feel better when they're stacked that way. Well, as a human being, you crave structure. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what that's what life is. That's what panic attacks are. Is a, I, that's what I heard is like a lack of structure. Yeah, like every yeah, well there's also the element of like it's all going to go bad. Right. It's all coming at me at the same frequency. I was listening to something and someone was saying that panic attacks happen a lot in actors and musicians and people who crave structure and find themselves in environments that have none. Mm. And that's certainly why I get panic attacks. Well, there's that moment before you enter the uh, ritual space, right? Uh, which is your performance space, right? Where you're like, I don't know how this is going to go, right? Yeah, no, just the panic of of transition from uh, from me uh-huh. to that guy up there, right? Yeah, and and you know, if if you if you're successful enough at it, there's literally nothing you have to do before then. Right. Like it's basically 10 hours from waking up to doing that of just lead up to yeah. thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, doing yeah, it. Yeah, you can't. Uh, you, the thinking about it's no good. It's like getting launched into space. Yeah. you know, it, No, it kind of is. It's like the ramp up, you have the yeah. countdown, and then you put that foot on stage and you can't go back. That's right. But but also like after years of doing it, you know, you know which knobs to flip and mm-hmm. the capsule's prepared. Right. And uh, you know, they they you know, your suit should be secure, your oxygen is hooked up. <laughs> you, you should have a certain amount of confidence with the vessel uh, after a certain point. Can I ask you something as what? as someone who's like better at better I would consider better at it than me. It's like do you ever have that moment where you like you just take a foot on stage? And you just know that for whatever reason, the energy in the room is weird, and it's just going to go horribly. Like, Let's, like, give me some examples. I'd like to. I'd like to hear the rest of those stories. I mean, it's not <laughs> definitely, dude. I mean, you know, you, especially if someone's already gone on, right? Uh, you can sense uh, the vibe of an audience. I believe that's true. Right. I believe you can sense it from the way they're laughing and what they're laughing at and how right. they're laughing. I think that once you've been doing it long enough, you can hear where there's resistance. You can hear where there's a pocket of problems. Right. Uh, you can hear, uh, you know, uh, maybe what their level is. I mean, sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes uh, an audience just hasn't popped. I mean, there are, audi- there are audiences that don't pop. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of uh, difficult. But, but you know, after about 10 minutes of pounding your head against the wall you're just gonna have to <laughs> accept the level engagement right. the level of engagement that is uh, being presented to you you know we work so hard the worst is there's a bad audience and i'm watching and i'm like all right when i get up there Everybody's i'm gonna, gonna turn f- it around. i'm gonna fucking turn around with my amazing stand-up comedy i never think that 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 would be the difference between me and you. yeah the best i can hope for is that i'm comfortable not paralyzed with fear and i don't close down and get defensive uh-huh. That that's how I go into it. They seem to like me. Uh, I guess I'll stay open. See, I have I have a good. Well, it used to be ten seconds, but now I have a good three minutes of doing badly before I start to get mad at the audience. Uh-huh. I used to get. I used to just flip on the audience like bam. Like, yeah. Like even before I told the joke, if people weren't like, if I felt like I don't know, like if if I felt like they weren't going to start laughing yeah. as soon as I started speaking, or if they weren't laughing during the setup. I would just get mad at them and decide they were a bad audience and punish them. Do you like, ever chant before you go on stage? Uh, only, you know what? I actually only did that. Uh, I I tour. I've toured through Europe a few times, mm-hmm. and I I've, I've only done that like during my first European tour when I was just completely scared shitless at every every show. Yeah, because I 
I have this mentality where if something goes badly, I'm going to get fired from the world of comedy. Yeah. And so when I enter like... It's that great Nate Bargatze joke. He's like, you know, I can't quit. It, it, you know, who would you quit to? <laughs> what, have you ever heard his joke where he's like, what am yeah, I going yeah. to call Cosby? <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> but it's true. The best joke. You know, it's like I'm always, I'm always convinced I have one foot out of the comedy world. And that I'm... <laughs> you got to stop that. You think? Yeah, because, uh, you know, I, I was like that for a long time, but that's it, that's also, uh, it enables you to remain, it, I think that it, that protects your fear. Uh-huh. That, like, you're, there's part of you that thinks, like, um, uh, like you know, I'm not really in it, or, or uh, I could always do something else. It's like this safe haven in your head, and I got to tell you, Liam, it's too late. Right. You're in. I have no I have no marketable skills. You do. You could figure something I, I, out. I, believe me, I've, <laughs> I've made a resume. But Andre Dubachet, uh, who now writes for Conan, yeah. always, always said his, his motto was no plan B. No, I, yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm hip to that, you know? Well, I mean, there, it just, there isn't, there, there are ones, but, you know, after a while you realize, well, that's ridiculous. Right. And I, I've been doing a joke on stage about that. There's that, that awkward moment where you hit a certain age and, and, uh, and there are there aren't any more. Right. That whatever your fantasies were, you have that moment where you're like, Well, I could always Wow. There <laughs> <laughs> who deleted that folder? I guess part of it is my mom my mom went to law school when she was in her mid thirties. Yeah. She had two kids. Right. She also had Crohn's disease, which yeah. is like a, if you don't know, is a is a disease of the stomach lining. That yeah. Basically you get like the scarring in your stomach it's lining. It's horrible. And it's stress activated. Yeah. And she essentially was like, well, I've got this horrible, painful, stress activated disease. I will go to law school for three years. And yeah. She did. And it almost killed her. And she had two kids. And, uh, you know, but the the thing is, I always kind of look to that as an example, as always like, well, you know, there's there's always, you know, there's there's always, you know, deciding what you want to do and, and doing it. But this is what I've always known. I've wanted to do this, you know. Well, your frustrations are like you know. I've known you a long time, and you, uh-huh. you know, you've done a few things, and then you you sort of uh, had this uh, this success with this weird little room, right? Like you've been kicking around for a long time. I've been kicking around for a long time, uh, and I, I always like I always snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. Like things things are on a roll for me, and then I always manage to just find a way to be like. No, nah, I'm going to do this other thing now. And like what? Like what? How that? Like what's an example? Of that? You're a pretty sweet guy, which you know doesn't always fare well in this business. I'm actually. It's so funny. I'm either very sweet or extremely angry. But who are you angry at? You? Are I'm, you a, a brooding, uh, talking to yourself, bearded man? I'm definitely a, a an angry lumberjack. Well, you don't seem like the kind of guy that uh, that goes around hurting people emotionally. I I don't I don't know things that people. All right, here's all right. Okay, here's a perfect example. Yeah. Okay. I did a set at eating it at Luna Lounge. Right. Okay. Years ago, this would be. Years, oh, this would be. This would be when I was working at uh, the Humor Network. Right. Uh, uh, Dave Miner and Dave Becky approached me after the set. It had yeah. gone well. Yeah. And they were they were like, you know, we have this client who's doing a one man show on Broadway. Yeah. Uh, he needs help. You know, just uh, writing some stuff. Yeah. Do you want to like just sit down? It'd be no credit, no like very little pay. Yeah. And I was like, uh, sure, here's my card, call me. 
and they looked at me like, "Oh yeah, we'll call you." Yeah, and that was that. <laughs> and, so, that but, was that. and that kind of sits with you. That's like a like a, a tumor inside of your brain. <laughs> it, it's 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 definitely learning. But was it? But it was an oversight, wasn't it? I mean, you weren't being just, arrogant. I wasn't. You? I wasn't being arrogant. I'm a hundred percent sure it came off as a little bit arrogant. <laughs> Who was that performer? I'd like to know. Oh, I don't. Uh, it's John Leguizamo. I don't. I'm oh sure. right. Yeah, I'm sure. Like he doesn't care of it. But no, ew. what does he care? What's he gonna do? He's going to come do one of his characters at you? One of his broad range of Latino characters? He's going to come at you? <laughs> Listen, he is a sassy ant in the Bronx that is going to tell me what's what. <laughs> no, I mean, but it, was, but it was just like one of those things where I look back at it and I'm like, oh, the thing that normal people know what to do is to say like, sure, I'll call you first thing in the morning and, and set up a set up a t- appointment. Well, both, your, both your folks are still alive? Both my folks are still, and they're still together. And they and they live in a nicer place now? They they, they bought a house okay, about so, 12 so years ago. Well, as Buddhists and as parents, I mean, uh-huh. what do they think of your life? They, they're they very proud of me, actually. My mom is a very talented artist and she was a very talented like s- singer. And musician, but she just never pursued it. You know, it was just something that she wanted to do, and I think you know she said she was just afraid to pursue it. But she, it doesn't eat at her. She still enjoys doing it. She's she doesn't do it anymore. Mm. You know, she uh, she's a lawyer now. She has her own like mediation arbitration mm-hmm. practice, and uh, so I th- I think that there's like an element of like she's actually proud of me for for going after this, and you know, for, for living through the disappointments that she chose wisely. <laughs> To avoid in her life. What's your old man do? Uh, He works for the Board of Education. He's like a... He's like Danny Glover in Lethal Weapon. He's six months away from retirement. Oh. And he does phone. You hear that a lot, I bet. (laughs) Six more months. He doesn't want to go. But, uh, you know, he's he's of the age to retire. You know, he's going to go on a full pension and, you know, he's going to sit at home and, and play computer games and be happy. Well, let me tell people about what, what exactly your place is in the world of comedy, certainly in New York City and now with this documentary that, that, you've, some, that you've put together as a last-ditch effort, a Hail Mary pass <laughs> for Liam McEnany. I certainly, I, I, I talked a guy into funding it. I still, I mean, it was a great decision. Well, and, you had this room, like I knew you because, you know, you did stand up with my ex and I knew you from around town and you're always a nice guy and you had some funny stories and funny jokes. And then, you know, then I, at some point I went back to New York and you had started this room and you're like, will you come do my room? And I said, sure. And the first time I, I went there, I was like, where's the rest of the room? <laughs> I mean, this point, it's in a basement, in a bar. And what is it, see, 20? It's seated, it's, it's seated about... 50 Come comfortably. on. I'm comfortably 50? Comfortably. It was, there's, there's no stage. You sit there where the band was in a corner where you're not able to move. There's a <laughs> chair. And literally there are audience members a foot and a half away from you sitting at a counter. Right. And then there's a few <laughs> tables in front of you. And, and it's this long, narrow room. And about two thirds of the way down, you just all you, you just see darkness and some faces sticking out. Right. And and then there's a stairway that cuts into the room. So it, it, it couldn't be a more uh, 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 seemingly... A difficult uh, comedy situation, but the fact is, it was uh, you know brutally intimate. And I got some good work done there, and and everybody has gone down there. You know, who were some of the but people? You, like all, you know, Brian Kiley was there. Brian Kiley, Janine Garofalo, uh, Mark Marin. Um, I'm here. I'm right here. <laughs> Fred Armisen was there. Yeah, uh, like basically New York it, people. A lot of people did it once. <laughs> You're really selling this thing. I, yeah. Well, well the, I, I've done it several times. The room, the room is over. I mean, I, I stopped doing the show last year just because it it just was a lot of work 
and the, you know, it's like once and I, he had that band or that guy who played guitar and that girl who sang. Yeah, a brief few of the Hudson. Yeah, uh, you know they. But I, I was, I just started doing shows at the Bell House, which is like a, a four hundred. Yeah, I've worked there. It's seat good. Venue. It's yeah. a great venue. Yeah, it's and great. I do, I do that once, once a month, and it's just in the name for of the me. show. You book it out, and it's yeah. a tell your friends. It's a tell your friends show. How do those uh, draw? Pretty good. Great. Like the la- last couple were sold out. No, oh, it's great. You know, and uh, it's just. I don't know. I got to get on with I got to get on with my life. I can't, you know, I can't be booking a bar basement show for the rest of my life. I can't I can't do it. <laughs> no, then you become one of those New York characters. You know, they do a doc on you when you were 70. Yeah. I started this. Yeah, you become <laughs> The bar's gone. It's just a basement now. My fear, my honest to god fear is being like a paragraph in a chapter of someone else's story. Yeah. You know, yeah, and I don't, I don't want to be the, you know, it's like I, I, I got into stand up to do stand up and to like do stuff. I didn't want to, you know, just be, you know, that guy who was just like, oh man, Liam McNeeny, remember, remember that guy? Yeah, he used to run that room in a basement, right? What happened to him? What happened? He hung himself with his belt in his parents' bathroom. <laughs> but it's not his parents anymore. It's his place. <laughs> <laughs> he hung himself in the in the apartment he grew up in in Queens. <laughs> A Russian, uh, Russian Jew found him. <laughs> no, but you know, it's like uh, I don't know. I just I, what I really wanted to do was like document this show and then just move on. But was there a moment there where you were, you, you know, where the 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 clouds opened and God's foot was about to stomp on you? Well, that's the thing. Was like you know, for, I I had like a good. I, I've always had like good runs where like something good will happen, and then there'll be two years of me working in a call center. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, well, what? Where did where, where did that go? And I w- especially. What do you think that is? What? Why do you, you blame that on circumstance, or do you find something in yourself that perhaps uh, uh, has has this pattern recurring in you? Well, I mean, like you know, as you alluded to before, I'm a very <laughs> heavy. I was. A, I am a very heavy drinker. And like that'll that'll do it. That'll, like, you know, especially I'll be like, like okay, so I did premium blend, this right? Comedy Central, Comedy show. Central, sure. which showcase is, show, yeah, which which was like a stepping stone for bigger things, but at the time I was like, all right, well I did premium blend, I'm here, yeah, I've arrived. <laughs> all right, come get me, industry. And then I, <laughs> I waited on that for a little while. But really, I mean, were you that naive or were you, did you just find that your your ego got away from you? I mean, Premium Blend really is, on some level, yeah, it's it's a rite of passage more than anything else. I don't right. even know if it's an opportunity. It's not even. It's a it's a credit. Right. But it's it's like a good first credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's one of those, it's sort of a, a, a validation for a young comic right. that, uh, you know, they're good enough to do, you know, eight minutes on television. But I, I don't even know if I was like I, I watched my set again last year and I was like ooh I needed I needed to work I got I got it you know it's funny it's like one of those things where I felt like I didn't I I entered this contest Are you a little hard on yourself chief <laughs> oh I hate myself Mark. yeah yeah you have no idea <laughs> <laughs> I probably do <laughs> <laughs> but like I'd entered this contest that Comedy Central used to have called Open Mic Fights. Mm-hmm. And uh, the woman who used to be the head of East Coast Talent and Comedy Central was a woman named Naomi Frisch, now Naomi Steinberg. I know Naomi Frisch. And she, I, I feel like, honestly, she's one of the unsung heroes of comedy. Like, oh, I'm sure she'd be great to, happy to hear that. I, you know, she was involved with uh, 
with uh, with Luna towards the end there too. She booked Luna, but she she discovered people that she helped people, me out. She helped you out. She she discovered Dimitri. She discovered Eugene. Like she, you know, like she basically gave a foot up to all of us who were in the New York scene at the time, especially. Uh-huh. You know, and she used to see people come through Luna. She used to hang out at Susie Felber's show uh-huh. at the Yield Triple N. I don't know if yeah. you ever did that show. Probably. Um, <laughs> it was, but, you know, like she used to actually be on the ground and, and see us and, and see who was funny and who wasn't and like, you know, give give booking opportunities to, to comedians. And so I entered this contest that they had and the and the grand prize was a spot on Premium Blend. And I, <laughs> I got a call from them that was like, Look, you didn't you didn't get into the contest, and I was like, oh, but we do want to book you for premium plans. So, so you didn't make the cut for the contest, but I, they want to throw you a bone on the TV show. So you do it, <laughs> and then then you're like, all right, now what happens? Phone should start ringing. Yeah, I was like, oh well, I'll just send out this tape, and of course, you know, I'll get booked on this show, and I'll do this and that, and then eventually, just nothing happened, and so uh, you drank. I drank. I did some road work, but I wasn't really ready for the road. You know, like I kind of. That's how you learn. That's how you learn. I opened for, <laughs> I opened for Jim Norton the weekend after September eleventh. That's, that's a rough crowd. Yeah, <laughs> the weekend after September eleventh. So <laughs> like everyone was just like completely. I was completely miserable, and you know, it was uh, in New York City. It was in. Uh, it was at Bananas in Poughkeepsie. Oh my God! And the, everyone was so shell shocked and horrified, and it was. That's rough for anybody. So it was, all right. It was rough. Didn't for, go well. It didn't go well for me. He did great. The first the first show he was like, I don't know, maybe I'll just like back off of it a little bit and not really mention it. And the it it just kind of was like not not a great show all around. And then the next night he was like, you know what, I'm just gonna just go for it. And <laughs> he got on stage and he's just like you know, like Route ninety runs through Poughkeepsie and he's just like, Yeah, you know where those terrorists should have dropped a bomb was Route ninety right outside and everyone yeah. went, Wow. Really? And then he's like, we just got to drop an AIDS bomb on the Middle East. And they all went, wah. And then he did the rest of his set, and it went, like, amazingly great because he had- Acknowledged uh, it. He had, you know, the elephant in the room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, so that so you got that from Premium Blend. Well, there you go. <laughs> I got that from Premium well, well, what was the drinking for you like? I mean, what, what were you doing? I mean, were you, what, what, was, your, uh, what was your diet at the time? Um, I mean, because you, you did hit a wall eventually, but we'll get to that. But I right. mean- how did you know you were fucked up? You seem like sort of a jovial drunk. I, I as, as we've touched on, I, I have a lot of anger inside of me. What, let's get it out. What's it about? <laughs> uh, Sounds like your parents were okay. I, I come from a long line of crazy Irish depressives. Yeah. And, you know, uh, angry Jews. Yeah. Uh, all of whom, you know, managed to bully their way out of the old country. Yeah. And into the United States and settle here and carve a life out. And you just have to have that, like, real drive and anger. So yours is uh, submerged. Mine is, it's, uh, depression is anger turned inwards. Yes, I've they, heard that. As they say. Uh, and, it, and so basically, you know, drinking lets you get that out. <laughs> You know, it lets you feel your feelings. Yeah, how and how they express themselves for you, uh, or it doesn't let you feel your feelings. But yeah, it lets it numbs you, them up. It, yes, um, I would just yell at people. I mean, I would I would just get angry. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I blacked out a lot, and yeah. so oh, that's scary. The last like the last year of my drinking, I would just run into people who would say like, "Hey, I saw you at this bar last night," or "I saw you," you know, 
at this party and I, the first thing I would say is like, oh, do I owe you an apology? Yeah. And they'd be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you might think about that. Yeah. <laughs> and then they'd show you a cut. Yeah. <laughs> this ring a bell? Oh, well, <laughs> you know, it's like, but I mean, I would, I would like, I would get drunk and on the Lower East Side and I would walk up Broadway and I would just walk up the middle of Broadway up to like, uh, you know, up and through the 20s to Times Square. In the street? In the street, right in the middle of the street. Didn't anyone see you doing that and say like, hey, Liam, I think, uh, did were you walking through the middle of Broadway? No, no. I mean, it was like, you know, two in the morning. So you're just one of those New York people. That's yeah. that guy. <laughs> Walks I'm, in the street. I'm I'm that shuffling, talking to himself, angry guy at two in the morning, like da- like daring taxi cabs to hit him. Right. So what? Ha- so how would that uh, you know pan out? I mean, where where what was the wave? When did you well, decide to make the movie and decide to to stop doing that? What was the event? I was at a party and uh, it was a Fourth of July barbecue, and I started at two in the afternoon. Uh. And um, I remembered brief snippets of it, but not a lot. Yeah. And then there was a party. Uh, there was like a, my friend's pool party in Williamsburg. And I decided it would be a good idea to take off my clothes, which is never a good idea for me to take off my clothes in public. Mm-hmm. But uh, And jump in his pool. In front of everybody. In front of everybody. And then my sister had to drive me home. And then two days later. Did they have to take you out of the pool? <laughs> I no, can't. I mean, come I, on, big guy. <laughs> no, I think I just, I think the hilarity had <laughs> had become uncomfortable because that's the one like everyone's like, oh my god, and then right. you're still in the pool, and then people are like, oh, it's a little weird now. And, yeah, I mean, this was also a guy who like I had gotten drunk at a party five years ago and just thrown a phone book at his fiance's head because it was hilarious, mm. and then he didn't talk to me for four years. So this is what's inside of you: a guy who jumps into pools naked, throws phone books at girls, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, I'm I'm when I was 10 years old, I was diagnosed with suicidal depression. That's like uh I mean, that's you know, so it's like when I was 10, I just I guess I told my mom like, yeah, I just feel like jumping out of that window. Yeah. You know, and my parents uh, you know, they did the right thing. They took me to uh they took me to a hospital in Queens, near where we live called Elmhurst General Hospital. Um and they took me, you know, they didn't have money. They were very poor. Mm. Uh, my dad had been laid off from his job. He worked. He used to work for AT&T uh, in the World Trade Center. And he had been laid off from his job. So they they didn't have any money. Uh, he, we were kind of living off of, he was selling his AT&T stock options. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, so, so they didn't have money. And so we went, we basically went to the free pediatric psychiatric clinic. Yeah. Uh, where I talked to this, uh, there's a guy, I, I, I wonder what he's doing today. His name was Dr. Kisnawala. Uh, he was a, I guess like a, an intern there uh-huh. and they prescribed this medication called the Cipramin, mm-hmm. which was like, I guess it was kind of the dawn of giving kids psychiatric medication. What year are we talking? How old are you? I am... Well, if we're in Hollywood, I'm 29, but I'm 36 years old. So this was in 1986, Mm -hmm. Um, 1986, 1987. And, you know, it was was very strong stuff. It was basically like elephant tranquilizers, you know. Um, I gained a lot of weight very quickly. Uh, So So that was the plan. He's too heavy to jump out of the window. (laughs) 
hey, if you can't move, you can't front jump on the tracks. Um, <laughs> but I got I got like really zonked out. Like yeah, I, I, like you know, this talk, is at eleven. Yeah, talk about not feeling your feelings. Like I was just completely gray. It was like I was just encased in in cotton. Yeah, you know my my brain. Um, and. I gained a lot of weight, which, as you can imagine, in a New York City public school, <laughs> no good. <laughs> when you're the fattest kid in school, definitely. But what's what's really funny is I look at those old school pictures now, and <laughs> like I looked like what a normal kid looks like now, right? You know, like you were ahead of the curve. I See was. That? <laughs> if I had been born ten years later, you'd be just part of the obesity problem. <laughs> and then all the other kids look like. <laughs> Look like pictures from Angela's ashes. Yeah. <laughs> They're just like so skinny. Um, yeah, so I was diagnosed with suicidal depression. How long were you on that medicine? I was on that medicine for a few years. Then they switched it up. Uh, they switched it up a few times. When I was like 16 years old, I ended up on Prozac, right. which is what I took till I was 21 and decided I was just done with therapy and, and medication. And that came in a, a manic episode or sort of an aggressive decision? Like, I need to feel. I'm way more passive aggressive than that. Oh. I just stopped going to my therapist. Oh. And I stopped, like, going to the psychiatrist. And you started boozing. I started, well, I started, I start. well, no, I started when I was, like, 14. Yeah. Um, the first drink I had was at a strip club on Queens Boulevard, which is now a parrot coffee in Sunnyside across from the Alpha Donuts. Yeah. Uh, if anyone wants to take the Liam McEnany tour of Queens, yeah. <laughs> now you know exactly. But uh, I was hanging out with my friend Evan, Evan Silverman. Hello, if you're listening. Uh, we went to the strip club. He he was in a band. He was in a shitty high school band called UBU. Yeah. And. Like UBU? Exactly. Mm. And their t-shirt had a picture of a finger pointing at you. Because mm -hmm. you could be you. Right. Right on, man. I don't know if I blew your mind there, Mark. I'm, it's, I'm still recovering. <laughs> Give me a few minutes. <laughs> so, uh, so I went to see them play at the Village Vault. <laughs> my my memory is, I have a very good memory for things that happened 15 years ago. Yeah, and uh, I have a horrible memory for things I said 10 minutes ago. Yeah. So, uh, well, fortunately, all that's recorded. So, if you need a refresher <laughs> course, we can. I can send you the file. <laughs> well, nobody's listening to this, right? No. Okay, good. Not yet. <laughs> um, so, oh, so we went to this. Oh, so after after the show, he was he played he played bass. Yeah. After the show, uh, I was getting a ride from him and his bass teacher home, and they were just like, oh, I don't know, do you want to go home? And I was like, I don't know. And they were like, Oh, let's go to the strip club. <laughs> and his uh, his bass teacher said that, and everyone's like, Yeah, let's go to the strip club. And I was like, All right, we'll go to the strip club. And we ended up... Your kids. The, I'm 14 years old. Evan's 14. And the bass teacher is... In his 40s? Yeah, that's a little weird. <laughs> it's very weird. So we went to the strip club, and I immediately got that these women hated us, mm -hmm. like just for being guys. Mm -hmm. And I found that very funny. Mm -hmm. And so there was this one stripper that I ended up just talking to all night. Her name was Jade. How much did that cost you? Nothing. Like, well, you were a child. How did you get in there? Dude, it was it was Sunnyside Queens yeah. in the nineties. Like she must have been thrilled to be <laughs> distracted. Well, that was the thing. Was like she would come over and we would joke. She had this like dominatrix hat, and I told her she looked like Ralph crammed in the bus driver, which she thought was very funny. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> at one point, I didn't get this at the time. Yeah, strippers love when you say they look like Jackie Gleason. <laughs> 
She must have been a real <laughs> piece of work. You know what? I have a feeling she had more self-esteem issues going on than what the fuck I had yeah, to say. Right. She was just uh, uh, happy that you weren't leering over her and trying to get you to give you a hand job. Yeah, she was probably happy I wasn't off like offering her 150 bucks for a blowjob. Yeah. Um, so that was your first drink. That was my first drink. We had a we had Budweiser beers, and then we had breakfast with her. That was the thing. Was like, then we had breakfast with the stripper, and then she, uh, and then and then she went. Her she said she was a DJ at a place called Club USA, and she's like, yeah, guys, come back. You know, I'll be dancing here. And then my friend Evan would call the strip club every week, and so he, he got obsessed. He did, and he would be like, "Is Jade dancing?" And they'd be like, "Yeah, of course, Jade's dancing. Come on down." And then he'd go, and she wouldn't be there. Uh, and he would call me and say like, hey man, I called the strip club. They said Jade is dancing tonight. You should come. And I'd be like, no, nah, I don't want to. And then one time I went with him and she wasn't there. And it was a bunch of like depressing Russian strippers. Yeah. Uh, so then we ended up going to another, to a strip club in Ozone Park uh, that was closing the next day. And it was like a woman, like a very heavy set woman in her mid forties. And a six, like a girl who looked to be about 16 who, who was zonked out on drugs. And, you know, she ended up just lying in the middle of the floor, fingering herself. Hmm. Uh, and the, but, but that, like, that was fun. Yeah. So it was like, we would go, we would get beers beforehand or, you know, I would get beers beforehand or, you know, I'd hang out with my buddies who I, I always hung out with these dudes who were like, you know, you know, potheads or, you know, uh, just, just. You know, basically guys with no ambition, you know, like, uh, and just basically I, I did horribly in school because I was taking these, uh, heavy antidepressants mixed with, uh, I had this one friend who always had like just a bottle of absolute vodka in his backpack whenever, whenever we were hanging out, which was, so basically like, you know, every week we were just drinking, like we would split between two or three of us just like heavy you know just straight out of the bottle absolute or you know i would get uh i got like a bottle of gin from my parents you know from my parent like this 108 proof gin and we split that and then we went to see the movie speed mm. and then he, <laughs> during the opening sort of like a speed speedball effect well he he puked all over the couple next to him nice yeah so that was your uh, that was your childhood that was that was that was my young adulthood. Yeah, from the age of fourteen on was just basically like you know binge drinking like crazy. And then and then it led to. But the the the, the point in fact is that you had these you know, massive depression problems. Right. That that did teeter on anger, and then you did premium blend. You were booking this basement room, and and then something you know some fire got under your ass to do this documentary. Right. And what is the documentary? I mean, what inspired it, and, and what is it? Well, basically, uh. It's it's called Tell Your Friends the Concert Film, mm-hmm. and it's essentially just kind of like, you know, some of some of people I just like out of the New York comedy scene, you know, who who were performing at my show. Yeah. And what what start what started it was I did a sh- I did like a benefit for Save Darfur at the Bell House actually I don't know four or five years ago, and I was standing in the back and I was like this is a really great show I wish someone. You know, I wish I wish these guys would let me tape them, and you know, so that I could see it, and you know, other people could see it because this is like such a great show. I feel like you know, people across the country who aren't in New York City kind of are deprived of. I have a very New York centric view of everything. Yeah, and so it's like I, I I just felt like people 
who don't live in New York City are kind of deprived of the chance of seeing like really great comics who are maybe working out stuff. Yeah. You know, new stuff or right. stuff that's different. Right. You know, because one, one of the things I always liked, especially when I started doing stand-up and the quote-unquote alternative comedy scene was in full force, was the fact that there were people who would work really, really hard on these shows that... No one know, ever saw. That no one ever saw. That would happen once and then would just disappear into the ether. Yeah. I think, uh, you know what? Someone made a film that has never surfaced that I would really love to at least see the rough footage from, from that Night of 100 Stars... Do you remember that show? Yeah. At Luna when like everyone did, did one minute. minute. Yeah. Did one minute. I was on one of those. You were on one of those. Uh I met the first Mrs. Marin at the screening of the film at the at the tonic downtown. The second Mrs. Marin or the first one? The first Mrs. Marin. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh I know the second Mrs. Marin. Yeah. Uh but the first yeah, and it was just like but it's just like other than that. Um, there, there was just no one really like documenting the scene. Right. So there would be shows like that. I put on like a, a gong show once, uh, that just, you know, people who are kind of well known now just kind of dropped spent, by, just dropped in yeah. and did, did like a crazy thing that they never did again. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I do think that even with YouTube that there is no sort of organized, uh, you know, it's hard to get that feeling of those sets that nobody gives a shit about. Right. Uh, and, and see them. And I, I, you know, I saw your movie right. and I was in it too, wasn't I? You, yeah. Yeah. You, you have to be careful, dude. You're turning into a respected old man of the comedy world. Yeah. Between that and that's uh, right, you and Birbiglia's yeah. were movie. And yeah. Well, I mean, I, I uh, you know, Victor Vernado and you came over here and we shot right. some interview and, and it looked pretty good. But so your your impetus was basically like, you know, I run this show, right. And there are these unique moments that happen in this basement, right? And uh, they're never going to happen again. I mean, I feel that way about a lot of my sets. Right. Uh, you know, there's my favorite sets are ones where like, wow, that whatever just happened there is not going to happen again, and and that was it. Right. And this party of the things like, well, that that's pretty cool. I mean, I know it and. And, you know, it's a nice thing that we shared, but, you know, living in the society we live in, it's like, what am I, a fucking idiot? I mean, it doesn't take anything to put a goddamn camera in a, <laughs> in a place. Right. I mean, in, in, there's moments where you actually get done. It's like, did anyone take that on their phone? Because I'm never going to remember <laughs> that joke. Because I'm just too irresponsible and insecure to record myself. Uh, that's going to be lost. I did a show recently that Reggie Watts closed out. And uh, I told everyone before the show, like, you can't, you can't use your camera. No cameras, no video. And it was my birthday, and so Reggie sang, like, a birthday song. And I spent a couple weeks afterwards searching YouTube just to make sure that nobody had secretly taped the show. Why, you wanted to see it? or Yeah, I wanted to see and, it. Because, yeah. like, you know, Reggie did, like, an improvised birthday song for me. And you don't... You don't it's gone. It's gone. It's, it's, it's there, and it's gone. So the, the, prime, the, the main comics in uh, performing in uh, Tell Your Friends are who? Uh, it's Reggie. Reggie Watts. Watts. Kurt Brownoller and Kristen Schaal. Yeah. Uh, Christian Finnegan. Mm -hmm. Leo Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Parvonian. Victor? Uh, Victor's just the director. He's okay. in it. Uh, Victor's a really good director. Yeah. You know, and we did this documentary angle also because I sat down with him to like, you know, kind of plan out the film or, you know, actually to pitch it to him because I sent him like clips because I, I, I feel like I got very bitter about comedy specials because I never got one. Yet. Uh, yeah. Come on, don't be so defeatist. Well, I was saying back then. Yeah. You know. A couple uh, years ago. A couple years ago. I, I, you know, when I, when I was growing up, I always had this idea of like the hierarchy of how your career is supposed to go, where it's like, you're supposed to get a TV spot and, and then you're like on your way to being a real comedian. Then you get like a half hour special and then you're a real comedian. Right. And then you start doing, you know, network television and then you're and then an you're established, more real. Oh, yeah, you're an established, established comedian. Right. 
and then you uh, get a sitcom and you're 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 dead. <laughs> <laughs> then it's over. Then and it's you over. Win. Then it's over. Then you won. You win comedy. Yeah. Here's your prize. And so I, I essentially was like, uh, all right. So then it got really. That didn't happen uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Like the for whatever reason, nobody wanted to book me for stuff. Probably because I was a mess. And I, I looked at tapes I submitted uh, recent, well, a few months ago, and I was like, oh, I'm mumbling and looking down and forgetting how jokes end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. Maybe I was maybe I wasn't ready to be on television. <laughs> um, so I was just like, well, you know, I sent him like clips of of uh, concert films yeah. like Woodstock yeah. and The Last Waltz. Wow, you were thinking big. Yeah. I was. Well, the thing, <laughs> all we need is a hundred thousand people in a farm, <laughs> or perhaps if we could get Neil Young and Bob Dylan to close it out, it can look like this. Good for you. That's very ambitious. <laughs> This is going to be the biggest comedy show ever. <laughs> the first thing Victor said to me about it when we were talking, yeah. it was like, it can't be two hours. It has to be under 90 minutes. And I was like, okay. All right. So, um, so we don't reach out to Bob Dylan. And, we don't and, reach out to Bob. But I'm, I'm, in, I'm in more stylistically. Sure. Where it's sure. like a lot, a lot of comedy specials that you see on TV, they cut to audience shots. And you know, like you know, there's the fucking crane that zooms over. Yeah, they're the all the same. They're all the same. There's there, there's a, a a sensibility that people can't seem to shake. Right. Uh, that was established a long time ago. That if you're going to do, like my feeling is, because I have to do a special at some point, is that don't make it an experience that that people are watching other people have an experience. Right. I mean, that's what that's designed for. It's like it's a big show, and then people at home are like, "Look at the show we weren't at." And, right. But usually, I think the, the the thinking was that that's when comics are at their best. That you know, if you put them in a room with fifteen hundred people, right. And you know, it's it's uh, it's you know, it's it's the energy is pumped, and and they're 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 putting on the best show they possibly can because of that situation. I think that for some of us, that's not necessarily uh, the best. Uh, example right. of a comic. Well, the, if you look at like Mitch Hedberg, they released uh, they they released an album and they included his his Comedy Central Presents special. I did mine the same week as him, and but they also included his unedited special, right? So it's like the special is just not even like it's not even like watching Mitch Hedberg because it just cuts from joke to joke to joke right. to joke. But then you watch the unedited special and it's him pacing the stage and kind of muttering aside. And then he sat down, didn't he? At some point, he sat down yeah. and, it, and it's really like watching a Mitch Hedberg show, right? Like that was the fun of of going to a Mitch Hedberg. I think I think live. you're right. I think that you know that the the flaws and the things that won't happen again, right? And the stuff that is usually thought of as as uh, detrimental to the pace, right? Is, is really the uh, the heart of it all. Uh, in a lot of ways, I, and I think that you know, uh, as as we all get tired of mainstream media, that that uh, or mainstream representations of of what it's supposed to be, it, it but it's still not appreciated by everybody. I mean, some people right. have been programmed by those shows to think that way. It's like, oh my god, why didn't they? Why is he's not doing anything? Exactly, right. it's, it's a thoughtful moment there. Part, I mean, part of part of you know, part of my comedy experience is that I've always. I've always thought that the best parts of a performance lie in the weird spaces. No, no doubt. I mean, they, yeah. those are the best parts for me if something happens that will not happen again. So that's what you tried to capture with the film. Yeah, I mean, dude, I started I started at an anything... My first set was at an Anything Goes Open Mic called Face Boys Open Mic. At it's Surf, Surf Reality, Reality, yeah. This dirty little black box theater. I followed a woman who got on stage, pulled down her pansies, scooped menstrual blood out of herself, painted a picture of a dick with it, and then did a performance piece about that dick, like a poem about that. She dick. gave her a special. 
<laughs> you know what? It would definitely be it would be highly rated. But it's like that's the kind of thing that I always thought was very cool. Like and just like weird, you know, stuff that's not just typical. Like I, I well, like, the thing is though that that there is a, a question of appeal and there's a question of craft and a question right. of integrity. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, if you're doing something to to make an impact in an art space, right? Uh, that you, you know, arguably, you know, is only for effect. Right. And is not necessarily an act or not anything that comes from a, a, a craft. I mean, it, you know, that has its place. Right. I, I don't know. I know the what you're talking about is that, you know, there's a chaos to the to the type of performances exactly. that happen in those environments uh, that you don't see much of. And I, I mean, I just like I like the idea of controlled chaos. There's a, I mean, you know, like and in, in like so. So when we put when, when we put the film together, you know, one of the things I said was like, look, I don't I don't want to th- i don't want to create a thing that's like you edit 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 yeah and you cut to an audience reaction shot and then you cut back and they've cut half the joke out right like you know all all that kind of shit i don't want like a crane i you know uh i mean i don't want like something slick like a product sure you know sure. um do you want something that has uh all the elements of your self-sabotage built into it you want <laughs> You want something that you can put out there that if it doesn't go well, it's clearly misunderstood because <laughs> these were choices based on my own warped perception of what people would like. Well, I, I didn't want it to be a failure film. Like, I wanted people to enjoy it, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But, but, like, there's a great moment where, like, Leo's doing a thing where he's like, who's funnier, a naked man or a naked woman? Yeah. And he's like, who thinks a naked woman is funnier? Yeah. And nobody claps. Like, yeah. it's just complete silence. Yeah. And he just starts cracking up and laughing into his elbow. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the kind of thing that, you know, would get cut out. Right. If it was on, you know, Comedy Central or, or HBO or I don't know about HBO, but, you know, like, but it's like, so. It's, hey, Leo, that one was funny because I just did John Oliver's thing with him. Uh-huh. And there was a thing that I, I'm sure they didn't put in this in, in the final product that was great because he was doing his jokes and he'd obviously run them. And somehow he just hit a snag right. and he could not remember. You know, he had set it up, but could not. He was on stage, and it was not happening. Right. Whatever was supposed to happen after the setup was no longer in Leo's head. Right. And I believe it was John, because they knew what the jokes were, he actually went out there and primed him <laughs> and, you know, to get him back on track. Right. And it, it was great, because, you know, those those things don't happen very often, but, you know, the when you're taping something, you, you, you there's room for some mistakes. Right. Uh, and also to make up for them, but, but I thought it was such a great moment, because... You know, occasionally that happens. Right. You know, sometimes I do old jokes and, and like, you know, I'll get I'll get halfway through and these are jokes I've done a million times and then you just like then here comes the next part. Right. And that's no longer in my head right, right now. But uh but anyways, I didn't mean to distract you. So 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 he just started laughing. He just started laughing and like it's just such a funny moment. It's as funny as anything else he's doing. <laughs> right. No, those are those are great. And I love that. And so it's like you know, I kind of wanted to to give the audience of just like the feeling. Like the great thing about Woodstock and the Last Waltz is that you really get a feeling. of... I love that you're still maintaining that these are barometers for whatever the hell you did. They I, are, I love it. You know, what? I think I think, and I'm not I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm no, just no. saying that like you you, t- you pick the two greatest concert films of all time. Well, why not? I mean, no, I, God, look, you know, if if you're gonna if you're gonna go to someone and say, look, this is what I want to well, do. Why, in your mind, what 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 did you capture? I would say we didn't. I did say we didn't capture. Like it wasn't as good as the last waltz. Mm-hmm. Like you know, obviously we didn't have eight million dollar budget. Did everybody come out at the end and do Forever Young? <laughs> yes, we had to airbrush uh, cocaine out of out of my nose after. 
<laughs> That's a very specific last waltz joke. I apologize. That was that a Neil Young joke? That was a Neil Young joke. <laughs> what, uh, so, but during the process of this, you got sober in the middle of the taping, or? I did. I, uh, I, I the, the shit hit the fan for you on a lot of levels the in shit, the middle of this? The shit so you hit the... <laughs> you decide to do this ambitious thing, and you're still a fucking mess. Yes. Uh, for some reason, uh, I was an alcoholic who decided, who just had very, am, you know. You're going to make the next Woodstock with I was comedians. Gonna, I was sure. Gonna make I mean, it's a very alcoholic way to think. It's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go from never making a movie to making the greatest comedy film anyone's ever seen. You're like Francis Ford Coppola in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. It's, I'm dealing with crazy Dennis Hopper. Marlon Brando doesn't know his lines. He's never read the book. I might be making the worst movie ever. <laughs> but uh but yeah. And Did you see Heart of Darkness? That documentary? I haven't seen Heart of There's Darkness. There's a great moment where John Milius, the uh-huh. the guy who uh who wrote Apocalypse Now or right. you know, versions of it, who's a, who's an interesting guy. He said uh, you know that you know I mean you know, Capo was in the middle of a mania, you know, doing right. this thing, and it just was become this money pit. And he was right. out there in the he had become that. Colonel Kurtz, right? Essentially, right? But uh, but but Amelia says, uh, you know, Francis had convinced me that we were making the only film that has ever won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like he, there's the uh, the charisma of of a manic genius. Well, that, I mean, that was, that was basically how we got the money to do it. Was like I, I just told our investor like, this is going to be the next big thing. This is going to be the barometer against how which you how are you get along with him now. Uh, we're good. He's happy. Yeah, uh, he might see some money sometimes. Do so. you ha- do you have mania? I do. I, I mean, you know, I obviously I are you bipolar legitimately or I've never been diagnosed. Um, I you know just haven't been to a psychiatrist or a therapist in fifteen years, mm. so I might be. I don't. I don't go through extreme manic swings where like people call me and are concerned. But what what drove you to sober up in the middle of this fucking thing? Uh, you know what? There, it just. I had done a show with a guy. Uh, but who, this is after the 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 nude bathing. This is before. I mean, like three months before, I did a show with this guy. Uh, my show actually, I booked him, and after you know, like I, <laughs> I got off stage. He closed the show with 15 minutes. In that 15 minutes, I had had two and a half whiskeys, uh, and I offered him a drink afterwards. And he's like, "I just felt. I actually just felt that." Yeah. Oh, I mean, like I remember that. Oh, are you kidding? I, <laughs> I say it, and I can taste it. I can tell you exactly. Like it was, it was Jameson, no, no ice, because God forbid anything fucking dilute what I'm drinking. Yeah. I used to drink vodka, like vodka mixers. Yeah. But like this was when I was in a hundred. I was 190 pounds. I was drinking these vodka mixers like crazy. Uh, I had a girlfriend who convinced. Me, I, I was convinced I was. I had diabetes. Yeah. I was 100 percent convinced I had diabetes. Yeah. Undiagnosed diabetes. Yeah. And that I couldn't. I basically couldn't afford uh, health insurance to take care of it. So I was 100 percent convinced that I was going to die. <laughs> Right, so why not drink? So why not why not drink further? And she was like, "Well, if you're really worried about diabetes, these these mixer drinks are really bad for your pancreas because they kind of overload with the juice and the yeah. So you should really 
you should really stick. Just drink straight. You should just drink alcohol. to straight alcohol. All right, so this guy's on stage. He closes with 15 minutes. He closes, and uh, you know, I'm talking to him afterwards, and I'm like, hey, can I buy you a drink? That was great. And he's like, yeah, actually, no, I'm good. And I was like, well, what do you do? You do the fucking thing? Mm, yeah, yeah, sure. That's a, that's the attitude I had. You do one of them? Yeah. yeah. What do you, what are you? AA guy? What are you, an AA a homo? God, God guy? You get the God thing? So he was like, well, yeah, I kind of do. <laughs> and I was like, well, I might be heading that way someday, like kind of as a joke. And he's like, well, when you are, just feel free to email me. You know, and then three months later, I had this experience. My friends, <laughs> my friend, well, I blacked out at two in the afternoon at, at this 4th of July barbecue. And this is during the taping? This, during... Was, this, was, uh, this was right after. Okay. I had had a thing where we did the taping. I got really drunk. I went home with someone I'd promised myself I wouldn't go home with. Mm-hmm. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Uh, woke up, dealt with that. Uh, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. Mm, okay. Uh, so you woke up and said, oh, God, what I, I do? I had so many adventures in sex and drinking uh, that, <laughs> that I, I don't know if I... I would say I regret them, but I would say I definitely would do things differently. I would be a nicer person to women. Yeah. You know, now. Yeah. I, uh, I don't want to get into it, but I mean, here's a typical example. I dated, a, I went on a date with a lesbian burlesque dancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're up for a challenge. I was, dude, <laughs> dude, if there was a woman who was in any way inclined to hate me, I would date her. Yeah. Uh, she she would. Do. That's where you fight the good fight. That's that's that's, that's what you're. That's the Irish spirit. <laughs> oh, you hate me. You yeah. have no idea what hating me is like. Let me teach you. <laughs> I will get you to the level that I am at with this hating me. No one hates me more than I hate me. Oh, you hate men. Just wait till I'm through with you. <laughs> good for you. Um, but she she would like strip to the theme of Top Gun. She okay. had like a she had a flight suit. She mm-hmm. would strip to, and I was like, all right, this is so we went actually Perfect. We, we went on a really nice date. We ended up hooking up, and I was you know I guess you would say suckling her, mm-hmm. and I felt something kind of warm go down my throat, and the next morning I woke up. And she's on her back. She's playing with her nipples, and there's yeah. white liquid. Coming. There's milk coming out. There's milk coming out, and I'm like, "Are you lactating?" And she's like, "Yes." And uh-huh. I was like, "What?" She's yeah. like, "I have this condition where I lactate all the time." Uh-huh. And I was like, "Oh, really?" And then you're like, "Mommy." <laughs> no, I was like, I started flipping out. I was like, "I think I drank your breast milk." She's like, "I don't understand. What's wrong with that?" And I was like, "What do you mean? What's wrong with that? I think I just drank your breast milk." Once. Nothing wrong with it. You probably needed it. We got we got into an argument, mm-hmm. and I guess she over was, that over that, mm-hmm. and then she was telling her friends like, "I don't understand why he flipped out just because he drank my breast milk." Yeah, it's like you you man you man, and then I guess it turned out she was like trying to f- feel what motherhood would feel like, so she was inducing lactation in herself, mm-hmm. and that was I mean that was just like the kind of that was actually fairly typical for my like. <laughs> dating life it's very exciting for a very long stretch of time didn't one of your best friends from when you were a kid uh get into some fairly horrible trouble oh that's right <laughs> oh you mean oh you mean one of my best friends from childhood who uh, is in prison now yeah oh yeah so um yeah uh essentially what happened was <laughs> and this is why you were filming no this was this was right when i got sober 
Like essentially, they they say in your first ninety days of sobriety are the hardest. Yeah, and that's when you really have to. So hit. you just shot this movie. We had just shot this You'd movie. You hit the wall. You got sober. Well, I'd hit the wall. Like I'd I'd come out to L.A. to interview you yeah. and a bunch of other people. Yeah, and we ended up going to a party that my friend threw to screen his pilot presentation. Right, and it was I had the kind of drinking where like. I, I cut my hand really badly opening a bottle of beer. Yeah. And instead of calling it quits and being like, I'm not going to drink, I was like, well, I'll just drink twice as hard. Yeah. Wrap that thing up. Wrap that. I, I like pressed toilet paper against yeah. it and like made a real, real ass of myself to someone I admire a lot. And uh, I got back to New York, did the blacked out at two in the afternoon, 4th of July. Uh, July 6th, I got an email from the guys who threw the barbecue, who also run a podcast. And they were like, you did this. You were racist to our friends. You said this. You offended us. And we want you to come on our podcast and talk about it at three in the afternoon. And I was like, no, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to email this guy instead. (laughs) You know, just just get my shit together. Yeah. Uh, so this was like right. We were we were still email the sober guy you knew. Email the sober guy. Yeah. Go to you know. Yeah. Get on it. Get on it. Um. And yeah. So like so this was like three weeks in. Yeah. Uh, essentially, like three weeks in, I got a call from my mom that was like, uh, "Look, you know, we uh, I wanted to talk to you before you before you <laughs> saw the news or read the paper." And I was like, oh boy, this is... Yeah. What did I do? (laughs) (laughs) Who do I owe an apology to now? (laughs) Um, And she was like... So it was... uh, It turned out this kid I knew from... Like, really, one of my oldest friends from childhood. uh, The son of my mom's best friend. Mm -hmm. uh, He had... In college, he had been diagnosed... uh, I'm trying to think exactly what it was. I think it was like a mixture of like a bipolar disorder and definitely schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And he had been on Medicaid and he had gone through this job training program. He'd gotten himself trained as a chef. He'd gotten himself a job. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he was making money, he was no longer eligible. He was making too much money to be on Medicaid. So he got on this new thing. Yeah. And um, just trying to figure out like how much I can talk about because I – like the court case is settled, but I don't know if the family's going to sue or what's going on. But essentially, long story short, his doctor was like, look, I can't really keep you on this medication. I can't prescribe a new medication for you yet. Can you take the medication that you're taking now and just stretch it out? And he was like, well, okay, if that's what you say. And of course, you know, he had these delusional episodes that came back because he was no longer taking the medication the way it was prescribed. And he was alone with his father, who had, uh, you know, was an old, older man at that point. You know, he's, this guy's my age. Mm-hmm. And um, he had, this, he was alone in the apartment with his father, and he decided that his father had some people who were tr- coming to beat him up and kill him. And so he cut his father's throat. Uh, and then he called the cops, and he, like, in his mind, it was self-defense. Yeah. Like, in his, like, he, he, it wasn't like a cold-blooded murder. It was like a, well, I have to defend myself because, the, you know, Jesus. my father's henchmen are coming to, to kill me. Crazy. Um. Yeah, so, I mean, that was, that was really. This is three weeks into your sobriety. So three do you, weeks in my Did you go see the guy? Did you? 
No, I, I couldn't. I, I felt really bad. I could not go to Rikers. I couldn't handle going to Rikers. His mom kind of asked people not to come to the trial while the trial was going yeah. on. I did go to the sentencing, which was really just uh, because as the wife of the victim, his mom was allowed to give a victim statement. Yeah. And so she used that as an opportunity to plead with the judge for leniency, and his sister did too. And it was just hard. It was really, really hard. I mean, this was like... A, you know, this was, I just remember him as like a good kid. Yeah. You know, he's, he's definitely not like a killer guy, yeah. you know? So that was going on. Uh, <laughs> then I got booked to be on Caroline Ray and friends for Showtime mm-hmm. special. Like, yeah. Right. I saw that. You were good. Thank you. <laughs> like Caroline just called me and was like, Hey, I'm doing this special in two yeah. weeks. Do you want, <laughs> yeah. do you want to be on it? It pays nothing and you have to pay your own airfare. And I was like, all right, sure. I'll do it. Uh, cause Caroline's like the nicest person on earth. Yeah. Uh, and I went out there and it was the, it was, it was like the night before my birthday I was in San Bernardino in a hotel in like a Hilton hotel room. Mm. Uh, I was already just gaining weight like crazy. I was sitting was in this hotel room and I was like, well, this is the, this is the rest of my life. <laughs> like, uh, I'm sober. I'm not going to be fun anymore. Uh, I'm in horrible shape. No one's ever going to want to fuck me. Like, it's the kind of thing where you're too depressed to masturbate. Yeah. Because you're like, I don't even want to touch myself. Yeah. Like, I'm just fucking I disgust crazy. me. I disgust me. And then, <laughs> then I was like, oh, well, it's almost my birthday, and there's an IHOP next door. I'm going to go. <laughs> it's like 1130. I couldn't sleep. I was like, I'm going to go to IHOP. I went to IHOP. I ordered a full breakfast, like pancakes. Mm-hmm. And then the waitress came and asked if I want to check. And I was like, no, I think I want another order of pancakes. And she was like. Really? And I was like, yeah, I think I want another order. <laughs> and, so, and so then... Uh, Happy birthday to me. <laughs> Happy birthday to me. And then... <laughs> and then uh, she, <laughs> I finished that and she came over and uh, she's like, all right, can I bring you the check? And I was like, this is going to sound crazy, but I think I want another, or- another order of pancakes. <laughs> and she's like, oh, no, honey, you need to go home and sleep it off. <laughs> I was like, like, oh no. (laughs) You were shut off by the pancake lady. I was cut off. Um, So so that happened. Uh, Then I came back and um, so I'd worked uh, on Greg Giraldo's TV show on Comedy Central uh, a few years previously. Um, And he was one of the guys who like, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty well known. He had his demons and his... Uh, you know, addictions. And he's one of those guys who kind of recognized me as a fellow traveler. Mm. Cause like I worked on the first season of his show and uh, it was kind of one of those things where it was like, I was working part time and I was doing a really great job. And you know, it's like, I just had a blast and I got along really well with everybody. Yeah. And so of course I was like, well, how do I fuck this up? And so they had like a season wrap party at a Mexican restaurant and which meant there were free margaritas. So I wasn't eating, but I was I was just drinking these like huge margaritas. And I guess the third margarita, my hand just stopped working. Mm. And so I just poured it directly into my lap. Like, and it just landed, and it, it landed in perfect circle in my lap. So A, I was falling down drunk, and B, it looked like I just pissed myself. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so 
Greg, who is like one of the nicest guys, like really like for, yeah, for fucking, all, fucking tragedy for all his demons, nicest guy, yeah. funniest guy, yeah. like the kind of guy who could walk into a room and immediately make everyone feel better just yeah. by being there. Like yeah. he really had that, yeah. that kind of presence. Um, and so I remember I was just sitting on my couch, um, and the night before I had gotten this text from a friend that was like, look, uh, I just heard Greg was uh, in New, you know, he was doing shows in New Brunswick. He was in this motel room. Uh, he, he OD'd on something, and he's in a coma. He's in the hospital now. And I was like, okay, well, uh, you know. And then the next day, this woman I know who's a reporter for The Post called and was like, hey, look, do you mind? My friend's doing a story. Do you mind if he calls you and talks to you about Greg? And, you know, do you have any information? And I was like, well, I don't you know. So I, did, I did the like, kind of thing where I was like, yeah, sure, have him call me. And I just never returned the guy's call. Yeah. Uh, but like, I got off the I got off the phone with with uh, with her, and there I got another call. Wait, like I got a call waiting. So I was like, oh look, I got this other call, mm. and that was a call that my ex roommate, who I really adore, was like a great person, mm-hmm. like really uh, was in uh, psych ward mm. um, for getting drunk and texting suicide threats to. Uh, my uh, her ex, mm. um, and uh, the call was you know this person is in the emer- you know is in the psych ward, uh, you know she's not she doesn't want her family to come, uh, you know would you, you know we I, the person who called me was like I can't go I'm out of town. I can't get anyone else to go. Could you just go and make sure she's okay? And I was like, all right. And, um, you know, so this was uh, literally right on the heels of, like, someone who I cared about, you know, had had just, you know, uh, was in the hospital in a coma. And my ex-roommate was being held in Elmhurst Hospital, where I had gone as a kid, uh, you know, to be treated for my suicidal depression. Mm Mm-hmm. And this was like the first time I had ever gone back. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, uh, and it was, I almost like, I really just wanted to bail. Like I really, uh, I don't know. I don't know why ultimately I could have just said, look, call someone else. Yeah. But at the time I was just like, well, you know, I, that certainly could have been me. <laughs> you know, I've, I certainly, I've been crazy enough when I was drinking to have been committed. Yeah. Like a real there before the grace of God thing. Right. Uh, I was just getting the sobriety thing and I was like, yeah, I just got to take care of other people. And so I went and like, as soon as I walked through the doors, it just, it just felt like a mistake. Mm. And it was so, it was so inappropriate, but because I was the only person who had come up to that point, I was so, I was the one who ended up sitting in this in this like little room with mm. her and her social worker. Yeah. Just kind of talking about everything that had gone down. Mm-hmm. And it's like inside I was screaming. Like inside like it's one of those things where I just kind of wanted to cry. Yeah. I couldn't. I could not bec- I don't know. I just was like I got to hold it. <laughs> 
Like, yeah. I was like, I was like, if I start showing my feelings now, it's never going to stop, and I'm going to end up here too. <laughs> <laughs> so I got through that. I called her ex boyfriend, uh, not her, one of her other ex boyfriends, yeah. and you know, we made sure she got clean underwear and yeah. this and that, and then. Two days later, I got a text from a friend that was just like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh, God. And then it turned out, you know, Greg had died. Right. And so just, you know, on my just on my 90th day in sobriety there, I was at Greg's memorial service, like looking at his wife and his kids, you know, next to his casket, bawling, you know, just really, uh, you know, it's just like some of some of the people I respect the most in this room, you know, and it really just kind of, it just hit, it just really hit home to me in a way that, you know, you know, when, when it's funny when I, when I talk in, you know, like sometimes people have you talk in meetings and I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story. And this is true. I was, a week, you know, a week or two later, I was sitting in a fucking church basement listening to someone talk about God and their relationship with God. And I was just like, what kind of fucking God would have me quit drinking and then fucking, you know, throw all this shit at me? And then I kind of turned it around in my head and I was like, well, maybe there is some sort of higher power that's looking out for me in this universe and looking out for all of us. And kind of took me out of drinking right before the shit really hit the fan for me. Uh, and you know, once I had once once I thought that way, I was like, man, I really am very protected. <laughs> you know, and like it it took you know it took me like a year really took me a year to kind of get over my feelings about Greg's death. Mm-hmm. But now I feel really like. Not grateful that he's dead, but grateful that I could be there for that moment to like to to see just you know so, just just to see just to see that and to feel that and yeah. to be present for that right just as a reminder for myself yeah of, you also, of the extremes that you know this fucking shit can take me to yeah and also you know you were there for other people you showed up for other people you were sober enough to show up for your friend and to right. process this stuff and and not uh you know it's interesting when you when you first get sober that everything is amplified mm-hmm. and then when when things like that happen you know it's 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 incredibly difficult not to personalize them uh in in it but it's also helpful mm-hmm. to personalize them and and, and not drink Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because like if you can weather that stuff, you know, and not say like what's the point, but say mm-hmm. like, well, this, you know, the, you know, I, it was important that I showed up for that girl. It was important I showed up for the funeral. It was important right. that I process these feelings. That that you know gives you some some you, you know it carves some new grooves in your head that you can you know you can be okay mm-hmm. and not drink and and also not think about yourself all the time. It's true. Mm-hmm. I I will I will cop to a moment where uh, someone was speaking. It was very moving. And then I just kind of turned around and John Stewart was standing about four feet behind me. And for a split second, I had that comedian thought. I was like, I wonder if I could go over and talk to John Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> what a great opportunity. <laughs> it's the perfect place for it. 
<laughs> that wouldn't be weird. <laughs> well, I can guarantee you one thing. If you'd had a couple cocktails, you would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's another gift of sobriety. That, that one of your stories is, I approached John Stewart for a writing job at Greg Giraldo's funeral. It didn't seem like the right moment. <laughs> Listen, I really feel like this is what Greg would have wanted. <laughs> All right, so the movie is... How is it available now, Liam? Uh, it's going to be released on DVD and CD on a Special Thing Records. Oh, great. Uh, which, uh, you know, they released, great. they released your box set. Yep. I'm really excited. Those guys uh, were my first choice after Warner Brothers said no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really? He, talked, he tried to get hold of Scorsese and figure out exactly <laughs> what he did with the last waltz and how that was put out. But, Listen, Marty, uh, who's your guy? <laughs> Who represented your film? I know it's a long time ago, but I thought maybe <laughs> maybe his kid's in the business now. We... All right. Well, great. So that's going to be available when? Uh, it'll be available December 4th. It'll also be streaming. Uh, I've got a company that's putting it on streaming sites and download and, you know, anywhere that you can check it out digitally. Great. And how long have you been sober now? Uh, since July 6th, 2010. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Good Mark. talking to you, man. It's good talking to you, too, Mark. Thank you. That's it. That's our show. It was I, it was great to see Liam. He's a very sweet man. Go see his movie. Do do what you're going to do. I'm going to go watch a movie. Hey, go see that uh, The Silver Linings Playbook. Holy fuck. David O. Russell's goddamn wizard. You would never think that you could push the envelope of a romantic comedy that hard. And he did it. And, and if anybody knows him, tell him I want to talk to him in here. Could you do that? Could you reach out to D-O-R for me? Go to just, uh, where am I going? Go to WTFPod.com. There's a lot of Christmas gifts there. We are going to be reissuing or doing a second printing of the first 100 episodes of WTF on DVD. That will be coming soon. The Boomer Lives t-shirts are, I still look for them every day. Every fucking day. I go out there and just, that weird hope, even though it's, the hope is still there. It's still alive. It's weird. Even though I know in my, in my, my mind, it's probably not going to happen. I just miss them. But the Boomer Lives t-shirts are, are you know, we've I've, I've made more of those. They're there. The tote bags are there. Everything's there. You get the app and upgrade to the premium app. Do all that stuff. I'm going to run down these dates real quick. January 4th through 6th, Fort Lauderdale, Improv at the Hard Rock. January 10th, 11th, and 12th, Raleigh, North Carolina, Good Nights. January 13th, The Ice House, Pasadena. February 8th, The Wilbur in Boston for a live WTF and a live stand-up show. All right, look. If the world ends tomorrow, I've, I've really appreciated all you people. And if it doesn't end tomorrow, I will continue to do that. Boomer lives! Boomer lives!